On the last episode of The Heretic, we met Dr. Peter Reed, a Great Barrier Reef expert and lifelong environmentalist. Mm. I come from an environmentalist family. I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-environmentalist. But whose career came to a halt when he started questioning the validity of climate science surrounding the Great Barrier Reef. And I contacted this journalist to, with the photographs to show that these very famous photographs, which are often claimed to show this massive damage from farmers to the reef, were completely wrong. Coming up on this episode, an interview on Sky News triggers a new wave of allegations against Peter. Well, I was duly summoned to the, uh, the Dean's office and given a, a brown paper envelope with the allegations that I'd said the things that I'd said and that it was serious misconduct and that meant that they could fire me if it was found to be true. And James Cook University's disciplinary processes reached terrifying new lows. It was just crazy. I, I think they just lost all sense of reasonableness in the end in their just chasing and hunting. As we hear about another scientist who was blackballed by JCU. He was damaging their line of research funding. That's, uh, that's all I can put it down to. As well as Australia's academic freedom crisis. The systems of control and, and, and management within universities are pushing against academic freedom all the time. I'm Gideon Rosner, and this is The Heretic, inside Peter Ridd's fight for freedom of speech on climate change, presented by the Institute of Public Affairs and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg. By mid-2017, things had calmed down for Peter. Around a year earlier, he'd been issued with a formal censure following complaints by Terry Hughes, a colleague at James Cook University in relation to Peter's scientific views about climate change and the Great Barrier Reef. To this day, neither Hughes nor JCU have ever refuted Peter's actual argument. No effort was made to, to see whether I had a, you know, a, a decent argument, which clearly I had because it was just uh, so obvious. It just went straight to discipline, but not just discipline, but also silencing. And mm. that is actually more, um, much more damaging than the disciplining. Hughes's complaint had ended with a formal censure. But it was just the start of Peter's problems with James Cook University. As time went on, Peter would become more outspoken about the quality of reef science coming out of JCU, and in turn JCU would become increasingly desperate to shut him up. The beginning of the end for Peter would come with the release of the IPA's flagship climate science publication, Climate Change the Facts 2017. John Roskam is the IPA's executive director. Climate Change the Facts 2017, which Peter did a chapter four, and looking at it now, the extraordinary resilience of Great Barrier Reef corals and problems with policy science was the uh, chapter that Peter did in Climate Change, The Facts 2017. Uh, it's a major research publication. It's a book of essays and original research that the IPA publishes and Climate Change, The Facts 2017 was in fact the third edition of, of the book with Peter's chapter in it. Um, it had... Uh, in 2017, contributions by Bob Carter, uh, before we before we lost him, outstanding scientists like Roy Spencer, Willie Soon. There was also a significant public policy element to to the book of essays. People like Matt Ridley, Bjorn Lomborg did a chapter. Um, the great Clive James did a very significant chapter on um, the media and public policy issues of of climate change. So. Um, climate Change, The Facts 2017 
is crowdfunded, was crowdfunded, and the IPA is in the midst now of preparing uh, Climate Change the Facts 2020. As with his previous foray into the climate debate, Peter's chapter for Climate Change the Facts concerned the Great Barrier Reef. In particular, Peter took issue with alarmist theories about coral bleaching, such as this report on the ABC's Catalyst program. Large parts of the Barrier Reef are suffering the worst coral bleaching Australia has ever seen. Personally, I've been devastated. I've, I've uh, come out of dives and broken down in tears from what I've seen. Our reef, like reefs worldwide, is struggling to survive global warming. A change of just a few degrees spells the difference between life and death. But in his chapter, Peter put forward his view that the white corals confronting us in news bulletins are a naturally occurring phenomenon. I basically said that the climate change, whether it's caused naturally or anthropogenically, is not damaging the reef, that the reef is in, in great shape and that we need to institute some decent quality checking and a lot of the science. What did you say about the bleaching effect in that article and what the cause of it was? Well, I said the cause was hot water, but, you know, it's always bleached. I pointed out that corals are probably the most adapted species to be able to deal with changing temperatures for various biological reasons and that we really shouldn't worry about the reef too much. Peter also explained what he, as an acclaimed expert on the Great Barrier Reef, believed the cause of coral bleaching was. Well, coral bleaching is when the water gets very hot and the, um, the coral expels the little plant that lives inside it. And there's no doubt that periodically a very large amount of coral dies. Mm. Um, but in fact, it's like a bushfire. It recovers very rapidly after it. And in fact, um, the hotter the water is, generally speaking, the faster the coral grows. So that if you go to the top of the northern end of the Great Barrier Reef, the, the water grows much faster there because the water is warmer. If you go to Thailand, Papua New Guinea, it grows almost twice as fast as the water around, say, as the coral in the water around Rockhampton. The reef really seems to be in very good shape. I often say that I think of all the ecosystems in the world, probably with the exception of Antarctica, there's no place that's in better condition, in fact. But Peter's disagreement was with more than just claims that climate change was killing the grief. He also took aim at the quality of the research, suggesting that it was. Well, as we've mentioned previously, the, the quality of the science in many cases is, is just absolutely terrible and hasn't been checked. We have emotional scientists who are being peer-reviewed by other emotional scientists, um, essentially uh, developing a story which really doesn't have much basis in fact. This is, this is a great scam that the, that the uh, science organisations and scientists have, have put on the public. That they always say, oh, it's been peer-reviewed, as though this is something fantastic. In fact, peer review is just a quick check, usually a read of a two or three hours by a couple of scientists of this work. It never goes over looking at the data, or turning, uh, looking at different statistical approaches or repeating the experiment or anything like that. Mm. It's actually not much more than a, a, a joke in terms of a quality assurance system. And when people hear a, science, a scientist say, oh, it's been peer reviewed, it actually means very, very little in terms of the quality. Yeah. Essentially, in, in lots of other areas of science, especially the biomedical area, where they've decided to do replication studies, mm. they find regularly around half of the peer-reviewed literature doesn't replicate. Yeah. It's, it's actually uncanny how often it's around 50%. Right. And so, essentially, what it's saying is that the whole peer-review system just doesn't work. No. And that doesn't really matter unless you're going to spend a billion dollars on the basis of that. But unfortunately for Peter, JCU had substantial interests in climate change and reef science, 
In particular, it had a number of partnerships with taxpayer-funded organisations like the Australian Institute of Marine Science and the Australian Research Council Centre for Coral Reef Studies, which is based at JCU. And then on the 1st of August 2017, Peter appeared on Sky News for an interview with Alan Jones and Peter Credlin. It was this part of the interview that eventually formed a large part of the basis for Peter's sacking. The basic problem is that we can no longer trust the scientific organisations like the Australian Institute of Marine Science, even things like the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. A lot of this is stuff is coming out, which the science is coming out, not properly checked, tested or replicated. And this is a great shame because we really need to be able to trust our scientific institutions. And the fact is I do not think we can anymore. I think that most of the scientists who are pushing out this stuff, they genuinely believe uh, that there are problems with the reef. I just don't think they're very objective about the, the science they do. I think they're emotionally attached to their subject. Peter's second and much more serious battle with JCU began with that interview. In particular, they objected to his claim that the science coming out of JCU and its affiliated organisations, quote, couldn't be trusted. So um, what happened after your appearance on Sky News? Well, I was duly summoned to the uh, the dean's office and given a, a brown paper envelope with the allegations that I'd said the things that I'd said and that it was serious misconduct and that meant that they could fire me if it was found to be true. And what were the grounds of that serious misconduct? Um, that the words that I'd said um, broke the code of conduct. The code of conduct Peter is referring to is the JCU staff code of conduct. It purports to govern the actions of staff at JCU and contained several vague clauses that were used to try to silence Peter. In particular, JCU alleged that by calling out the poor quality of science coming out of the university, Peter was in breach of a requirement under the Code of Conduct to, quote, uphold the reputation of the university. Part of their case against you was that you had breached the part of the Code of Conduct that required academics to, quote, uphold the integrity and reputation of the university. Yes, that, that I'd, you've got to uphold the reputation of the university. And because I'd criticised some uh, other scientists who were at the university, then I'd criticised the university. The problem here is that if, for example, that you have, and I never was alleging this, that somebody from my university was fraudulent, by their definition, I can't even say that they're fraudulent because I'd be damaging the reputation of the university. Well, that goes to what the issue with this is, though. You, you, you cannot criticise the quality of science coming out of an academic institution by definition without it potentially having an effect on the no, integrity of that institution. No, exactly. I mean, even if it's a small fault that I'm finding with a, a fellow scientist, by definition, I've damaged their reputation by saying that you've got something wrong. This was a point that Stuart Woods, our QC, made uh, very eloquently. But yeah, absolutely. And I was there. But that to me is a, is a mechanism to prevent dissent. It's precisely what it is. You cannot have any dissent of any nature against uh, somebody in your institution or, or affiliated with your institution as, as the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences. Yeah, otherwise you've breached their code of conduct. Uh, by their definition, yes. But even in that early stage, Peter knew that he was being railroaded and told them he wouldn't take it lying down. They were very shocked when I, at that meeting, essentially told them that they're going to get a fight out of me, that I'm not going to be have my throat cut. Uh, easily. And tell me about the meeting, you know, who was there and so on, how many people? Uh, there was an, an HR person and the dean. Right. And what was the, the conversation like? Was it a... It was extremely officious, essentially. You know, here's your paperwork. 
um, you've got 10 days to respond to this and that's it. So it was very formal, very legalistic. Yep. One reason Peter knew what he was in for was because he had seen it all before. Professor Bob Carter, a contemporary of Peter's, had been handed out of James Cook University himself, despite considerable academic accomplishments. And like Peter, he was driven out because of his views on climate change. Bob Carter has since passed away, but his widow Anne agrees to sit down with me to talk about Bob's experience with JCU. Specifically, she tells me about the period when Bob had retired, but remained affiliated with the university as an adjunct fellow. So just to go back, he did retire in, in the 90s and then remained associated with JCU as an adjunct professor. professor. And he was given, yes, he had his own room and research area. Mm. And, um, and so he was still doing a, a, a lot of marine research, um, running big uh, marine cruises with the IODP and writing as well. Mm. Mm. And uh, so during that time, Bob was quite outspoken on climate change. What, what, what were Bob's views on, on the climate change issue during that time? Oh, well, he, he had first-hand information from various scientists who originally had been appointed to the IPCC to give scientific reports. Mm. And he knew personally several of the people who submitted reports as um, very highly qualified scientists, who then found that their reports were doctored because the IPCC is, is the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Mm. And so after the scientists put in their reports, they are then put before some government officials. Right. And then they try and reconcile the scientists' reports with what the government wants to say and what the IPCC wants to say. And um, several of them resigned because they, they all their reports were either disregarded or altered by this government body, which is the overriding body that puts out the final international report. That's extraordinary. So... So scientists in good faith submitted their research and understanding and they were edited and altered. Yes, and or ignored. Bob was not a believer in climate change. Uh, uh, anthropogenic. Right, of course, yeah. Um, global warming. That's what it started off as, that humans were causing the change, uh, the warming of the climate yep. through use of CO2. And mm. Bob's view was that that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case because he could see over the millions of years, climate had varied between the Ice Age, the Little Ice Age, the medieval warm period. Human-produced mm. CO2 had not played any part in, in climate change historically. But as Bob became more outspoken on flaws in conventional theories of global warming, he was increasingly in the gun at JCU. Well, I think each year, while he was an adjunct professor and he was still doing research and speaking quite publicly, um, he was giving talks all around Australia and overseas. And each year, the adjunct professorship was had to be tick all the boxes, and they just announced that they were not going to renew it. It wasn't just that. He would no longer have his office. He no longer had any emails. He no longer had library access. And a little story is that Peter was very sympathetic to what Bob was going through, and he thought, maybe I can save uh, Bob's access, his use of emails and library. So he offered Bob 
employment of one hour a week from his own research funds. Mm -hmm. And the university said no. I speak to Peter about Bob's ordeal. Well, they pushed him out um, in a very nasty way. The, the funny thing was that I actually tried to, after he'd been, because he'd retired, he had what's called an adjunct position. So it was unpaid, right? And, then, and he was pushed out. I tried to hire him as one hour a week just so we could keep his email address, but the university wouldn't even allow me to hire him for one hour a week. They were utterly determined that they were not going to have this climate change denier inside their university. So they wouldn't even let him keep his email address? No, that's right. I asked Anne about the official reasons for Bob's dismissal. The university probably got over a 1,000 letters from all around the world saying how appalling their treatment was of Bob and his work. But the official reason they gave was that um, his research interests did not coincide with the research priorities of the university. Also, that he was not contributing enough in terms of voluntary teaching. He was unpaid as an adjunct professor. Was he the only one to not teach as an adjunct professor or was it a reasonably common thing? Um, an adjunct professor will volunteer to, to do things for people and Bob was still doing voluntary help. But it probably wasn't official. Within the university, there were students that would come and see him and he, mm. he would be helping them with their PhDs, even though... Um, yeah. So they just used that as another reason. Right. So, so you think that Bob was being judged by a different standard to other adjunct professors? Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. Anne makes no secret of what she thinks the reason was. I think it's, it was mainly just he was damaging their line of research funding. That's, uh, that's all I can put it down to. And, uh, and, and they couldn't rebut what what he actually said because he had enough qualifications that and support from many scientists from around the world but it, so they had to make it right from that very first time when they said his letter about mm. the reef was not um collapsing and carter isn't the only person who's of the view that universities are likely suppressing alternative perspectives on climate change because of financial motivations the IPA's Dr Jennifer Marahassi explains. So there's this research and this education mm. in Australia and mm. it's very, it's become very corporate, mm. corporatised. It's very much about profit, right. whether you're talking about AIMS or whether you're talking about JCU. Yeah. It's very much about profit and so many deals are done to ensure that money continues to come in. Mm. So they're, they're operating very often in their own financial interests. They're not necessarily about the truth. This podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. For over 75 years, the IPA has been fighting to secure freedom for the next generation with thousands of members across Australia. And now we have a special offer for fans of The Heretic. Join the IPA today and receive exclusive subscriber-only content such as extended interviews with Peter Ridd and many of the other people interviewed for this podcast. All that plus the other benefits of IPA membership, including our quarterly magazine, the IPA Review, priority access and discounted ticket prices to IPA events, regular email updates from the IPA team and more. Just head to ipa.org.au forward slash join. And now back to The Heretic. 
Concern about the research priority of universities is shared by many, not least of all university staff. One organisation that has supported Peter Ridd throughout his trouble with JCU is the National Tertiary Education Union. I sit down with Michael McNally, the president of the union's Queensland division. The offices of the NTEU are admittedly an unlikely place for the IPA's policy director to end up. Of course, there is plenty we disagree on, but nobody could fault the NTEU's commitment to standing up for the right of its members to academic freedom. Like Anne Carter and Jennifer Marahassi, Michael McNally is of the view that academic freedom has become compromised by the commercial considerations of university administrators. They are so focused on uh, prestige, on uh, brand reputation, on you know, uh, positive, positive press, that they will react in ways that, you know, I, I'm continually surprised by the things that university managements do. Um, they do things that you think is just counterintuitive but they do it because they want to be prestigious institutions. It's all about their reputation. It's all about attracting the next set of students. Um, and we could have a discussion about competition in higher education and whether that's a good thing or another, another thing on another time. Mm -hmm. um, but they simply can't be trusted on issues like academic freedom because their priorities are now almost not juxtaposed. That's probably a, a bit of an exaggeration. But when it comes to a, a matter where a university manager thinks that something is causing a problem, particularly a reputational problem for a university, they will act in ways that are inconsistent with any interpretation of academic freedom. And yeah, we have to be there to defend them. As McNally explains, while cases like Peter's have attracted huge interest, interference with academic freedom by university administrators is widespread and is going on in ways that we are not even aware of. So coming back to, to academic freedom, if you don't have academics able to interrogate orthodoxies, to find new ways of, even even new ways of doing research, let alone what it is that they're discovering, um, you, you really st um, stultify progress. So for our members, academic and intellectual freedom underpins where they, where they work, how they see their contribution to society, and, and so it becomes something that is you know, a touchstone for them. And so, in a in a workplace relations or industrial relations sense, it's impossible to function in your job as an academic without academic freedom. That's correct. Um, and and as I said before, you get these high profile cases where it, it explodes outside the university. But the system the systems of control and 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 management within universities are pushing against academic freedom all the time. So if, to give you a very simple example, um, you've got different rankings of journals. So. Now there's serious pressure on academics to publish in specific journals, not in the journals where they think their research will have necessarily have the most impact. Mm. So you might have someone who does some research in, let's say, bananas, and they think this would be really good in this low-level Australian journal because it's pretty much specified about Australian bananas. But their, their, their supervisor or their manager or their dean or whoever, someone up the line will be saying, no, we, we want this in an A-star journal. And there might be no Australian A-star journals. So they're trying to all publish in you know, journals like Science, um, Nature, those sort of top-ranked uh, journals. So that there, there is that tension in, in universities and, already. And, and what's the reason for that? Is it, is it uh, the profit motive? Is it um, prestige? Is it... To, to get that number one ranking every year. Correct. It's, yeah. it's about prestige. Michael explains that the union fights hard to ensure that enterprise bargaining agreements, the industrial agreements that are, in effect, the employment contracts between universities and their staff, contain a clause guaranteeing the right to academic freedom. 
In fact, the academic freedom clause in Peter's EBA would become a key issue in his court case against James Cook University. All of the agreements that we have with the major public universities in Australia have academic and intellectual freedom clauses. We tend to talk about it in terms of academic and intellectual freedom because we try not to exclude those people, um, for example, professional staff who aren't called academics but they're doing research um, or are assisting in research, doing um, lab work, etc. that's involved in research. So we tend to call it academic and intellectual freedom. But yeah, it's something that we have in each and every enterprise agreement mm. and unfortunately we have to rely upon uh, on a fairly frequent basis. But alarmingly, universities have repeatedly tried to strip these academic freedom clauses out in the negotiations with the union. JCU is one such university. And at one point during our interview, Michael shows me a page from an enterprise agreement drafted by JCU. The entire academic freedom clause is crossed out. Have these intellectual freedom clauses, as far as you're aware, been contentious with in, in any negotiations with employers? Uh, yes, clearly they have. Over the last few years, there's been a number of very high-profile high cases, some of which have been our members who we've defended. Um, and I think as a result of the complications that these academic freedom clauses cause managers who just want to be able to say, you can do this or you can't do that, um, they have tried to remove them in the last round um, we, we think about 10 universities sought to remove their um, academic and intellectual freedom clauses from 10 there. universities? Yep. Um, so JCU did it and, and you can see Gideon, but um, unfortunately we can't show your listeners that you know, there's a draft from the university managers in the last round of bargaining which basically removes the entirety of the intellectual freedom clause. Um, but other universities like um, uh, University of Melbourne, for example. Uh, My alma mater. Yeah, really? Okay, well, they sought um, in this round of bargaining to remove the intellectual freedom clause. The uh, University of Melbourne, the, the, the top-ranked university in the country. Yes. Is trying to remove the intellectual freedom right from its enterprise bargaining agreement. They tried. They they sought in negotiations to remove it. We obviously can't agree to a proposed agreement that removes our intellectual freedom clause. Same thing at, at JCU. We said that that was, you know, a die in a ditch um, condition for us. Um, University of Western Australia. Uh, now I'm going off the top of my head. University of Western Australia definitely tried to remove it. Curtin University definitely tried to remove it. Um, but about ten universities in this previous round of bargaining tried to remove it. And, you know, it's Peter's example makes it a no-brainer as to why they want to do it. They want to be the ones who decide whether or not something is academic freedom or it's misconduct. Importantly, several of the universities mentioned by Michael McNally have tried to strip out academic freedom clauses from their EBAs while making noises publicly about supporting free speech on campus. Specifically, the University of Melbourne and the University of Western Australia have indicated that they will implement the recommendations of Robert French, who recently completed a high-profile review into freedom of speech on campus. Obviously, these universities' commitment to academic freedom is hollow. As for JCU, it's no surprise that they have tried to remove the academic clause from their EBA. Eventually, it will become the only thing preventing their shocking attempts to get Peter Ridd blasted out of the university. But one tactic JCU did use against Peter was the use of what they called confidentiality directions. Effectively, Peter was gagged from telling anyone about what he was going through with the university, not even his own wife. One of the main things of those uh, things where they were saying that I was not allowed to talk to anybody about it. Um, now, <laughs> I actually then wrote back, I think the day after or the couple of days after and said, well, 
can I really not talk to anybody? Because the way it looks at the moment, I can't even talk to my wife about it. They responded and said, well, the letter says what it says and you've got to um, stick with it. In other words, they didn't give me permission to speak to my wife. So you, you could not even speak to your own wife about going through this process? No. Later on, it took them about a month, they said you can speak to your wife. But then, but then a couple of weeks after that, they hit me with two allegations where I sent emails to my wife. So I then was back in the position that I had allegations that I had spoken to my wife. So I had to presume at that, at that stage that now, again, I wasn't allowed to talk to my wife. And it took them six weeks, at least, I think, to eventually decide finally that, yes, I could talk to my wife about this. And how did they find those emails? Well, they found those emails because they were searching through all my email accounts so that they were trawling through to find dirt on me. I asked Peter to explain more about the email searches. Well, with the email searches, I was called up to the dean and I was gave, given a 128-page document. And when I opened it, it had all these emails which they'd gone through. And I must say, when I looked at this to start with, I, I just broke out into the sweat. It was, I thought... Good grief, they've looked at all my emails. What have they found? You know, because you're not guarded in most of these emails. And I read it and it took me a while to read. And when I got to the end, I actually was so relieved because to my amazement, I'd ne I hadn't said anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't had said anything that I was ashamed of at so all. So you stood by everything in those emails? Yeah, there was nothing there. Um, you know, I'd responded well to these students who were worried about my welfare. I hadn't slagged off at the university. I hadn't said that vice-chancellor was whatever, mm. even though that may be what I had felt. But they felt. alleged you did. Well, they alleged all these things which which were ridiculous, like I'd said the university was Orwellian, <laughs> you know. Um, these were quite ridiculous complaints that they were making. So I was actually quite proud of myself mm. um, that I had actually pr uh, behaved very professionally, I think, in, the, in quite a difficult situation. Still, though, to have your privacy invaded like that, Yes, that's right. And for only one reason, yeah. they were after dirt. And the reason they were after that they went this way was because after the first set of allegations, we came back with a legal thing to say, listen, this is just not going to work. And I think that they decided, all right, we're going to crush this fellow. Right. He thinks he's going to stand up and challenge us. We're now going to read his emails and we're going to put this guy in his place and scare the living good bejesus out of him, which of course it did. Of course, being repeatedly hauled before JCU's star chambers took its toll on Peter. It was terrible. It's the, it was just an absolutely horrible uh, period, you know. Um, you know, w with my wife, we were having to work out what we were going to do. Were we going to fight these things? Could we talk to anybody? It was quite clear to us by our work contract that these gag orders were illegal, but they were saying that they were illegal. Um, so we were going to have to challenge that, possibly. It was an extremely difficult time. Do you think that it may, I mean, for other people going through the th same thing, to not be able to talk to anybody about what you're going through, I mean, what's the effect of that? Well, this is why they do it. They know that it breaks you. They, they, they make it so that you ultimately have to give in. Um, so that's why they were deliberately misrepresenting these confidential provisions in our, our work work agreements. They had no right to do that. They were doing it to break you psychologically. Correct, because you are disciplinary processes should be confidential unless it's waived, but that confidentiality 
is only for the, the person being disciplined. It doesn't apply to the university. That's right. They, they turned it around. Essentially, the way it works is that the university is not allowed to talk to other people about what I've done wrong, but I'm supposed to be able to talk to other people if I've got an allegation that I've done something wrong. So, so they have bastardised, in effect, these confidentiality requirements to turn the entire process into an opaque star chamber. Yes, a very, very frightening um, situation for the person who's accused. But despite what he was going through, Peter kept lecturing. In fact, he even complied for the most part with JCU's draconian and ultimately unlawful confidentiality directions. One of Peter's former students, Hadassah Harland, tells me about the moment she found out that something was horribly wrong. Honestly, most of that was not really very visible to us as students. Um, I think the the time that really hit me that something was seriously happening was in third year. Uh, I took a subject in oceanography with Peter and we had a um, an excursion. Uh, this probably was about August 2017. Um, and... So this excursion was like out on a boat, it was like full day on the weekend and we're getting up there was at like, like 7 a.m. I mean, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Honestly, like always a lot of fun. We're just like, um, it gives a good opportunity to have some more chats about a couple of different things. Um, but I think we were talking about, uh, you know, so we were third year students of a three year bachelor degree. We were all like focused on where are we going next year? You know, what's happening? Um, and um, he made a, uh, just like a quiet comment um, that sort of like, you know, like I'm not sure if I'll be here for that or I'm not sure if I'll be around, you know, even towards like the end of 2017. It wasn't um, very explicit, but you could like feel it. And it was, it was, it, it sort of hit us all pretty heavily. We were like, oh, something's seriously happening here. So this was 2017. That was when, it, I mean, when the rubber was, rubber was hitting the road. Um, yeah. Did he seem upset? Did he seem anxious? Um, like there wasn't distinctly visible emotions. Um, like I guess there was a little bit of weight behind it, um, which I guess must have come from an emotional standpoint, just sort of like a little bit of uncertainty. But behind that kind of like, like despite all of the, the uncertainty of like what might actually happen and what's on the road ahead. Um, a lot of sort of resolution that like no matter what sort of happened, you know, he was sure about what he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, I think after that we kind of like like when we got back um, in a couple, like in the weeks following, we kind of like grabbed him um, and like asked some pointed questions about sort of like, you know, what do you mean? And sort of like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and I guess some more information sort of came to light, but no, it was actually quite hush hush. But behind closed doors, JCU's attempts to silence Peter were reaching absurd new lows. As his disciplinary process dragged on, JCU even tried to veto presentations he made outside the university, particularly after they had issued Peter with his final censure in November, 2017. Now, of course, what then happened was that I had to give a couple of talks after this final censure. And I had to give a talk at the Sydney Institute and also at the IPA. And they were, at that stage, 
telling me they wanted to see the presentations, all the PowerPoint slides that I was going to give. And I had to hand those over and they told me that I had to remove some of these slides and they told me what I could and couldn't say. So this was, I was kept, being kept on an awfully short string, even though I was, you know, supposedly free. And I found myself in a very difficult position being asked a question at the Sydney Institute. And I got halfway through uh, a sentence and I realized I can't say this. And I had to stop and explain, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't answer this question. And it was a terrible situation, very, very embarrassing. But eventually and inevitably, the axe finally fell and Peter was sacked in May 2018. They'd given me, you know, the warnings. They were not going to tolerate this any longer and they were going to get rid of me. So they suspended me um, and then I was sitting on a beach actually up at Bamaga on the tip of, uh, of Cape York Peninsula when the phone call came through that, um, that I was fired. Hadassah Harlan tells me about the reaction from Peter's students. So they were in a computer lab with another lecturer doing, like, like teaching the lab uh, to some younger students and got a text from their housemate at the time, actually, who was a lower level student. Um, and they had also been hanging out in that little little hovel back uh, in, the, in the 17 building. And um, Peter had come in and so that's where his office was so that he was like packing up some stuff um, from his office and the students there were just like, hold on, what's happening here? And they like pinned him down and they were like, what, what's happening? Um, and apparently he gave them like a, a quick rundown, like um, that like he was leaving, he'd been fired um, and then he was like packing up to go. Um, and I think that hit them all really hard. Uh, my friend actually said that um, he started crying <laughs> And a couple other people also got a bit teary with the news just because, like, you know, you have all of these high hopes and dreams that, like, in the scientific community you've got people, like, having mature discussions and none of this felt right. It's just, like, you know, here's someone who is, um, like, a respected scientist, like, has experience in the field and, like, has some opinions about the quality of the science coming out of that field and we're gagging him and we're, you know, like telling him to shut up and if he doesn't shut up, kicking him out. And it's just like, that's, you know, that's not what any of us got into science for. Like, that's not the kind of, um, you know, if you, if you want to get into that, get into journalism. Hadassah suggests that there are many students who support Peter who may be afraid to say so publicly. Yeah, I think my position right now to talk about this is, kind of unique because like I did finish and leave uh, I still have connections with JCU but like I don't have like employment or, or scholarships or things like that to worry about like if I talk about it at all that might jeopardize anything it feels a little bit like if you have an opinion like you're at risk yeah. and if you go against the, 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 the grain and the Established. I mean, that's not how universities should work. No, not at all. How um, any scientific institution should work. Yeah, that's not what science is. Science is about, you know, having those robust discussions about what's actually, you know, here's the data, uh, but, like, you have to interpret the data and, like, that's a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. Um, and I think, yeah, silencing that isn't an effective way to go about science, uh, science at all. Is it disillusioning or was it disillusioning? A little bit, I think. Um, 
I never imagined that I would leave when I left. Um, I was always sort of, um, I was one of those uh, high achieving, low motivation students. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got to the end of my bachelor's degree and I was realizing that I was running out of steam. Um, but when I'd started, I'd always wanted to go on, do research after that. Um, and I think, yeah, this was like a big part of like why I felt like everything I'd imagined before I went to university about what it was to study and then to do research and to like be a scientist was, you know, not what I imagined at all. Um, you know, it's all still politics and, you know, it's not about just getting out that information, that that high volume but high quality information that, like, allows people to really sort of dig through it and figure out the truth. Mm. You know, you're introducing bias by silencing one half of the argument and that's, you know... Like, I imagine, I guess, in 50 years I could have easily been another, like, person with those kind of opinions in that kind of position. And, like, I don't know if I would have had the resolution to go through with following up that, um, like, my beliefs mm. about what good science should be. And, you know, it is a little bit disheartening to think, you know, maybe I just can't go down that path if I don't have... You know, I, I don't want to set it aside, but I'm not sure if I can fight as hard yeah, for so, it. So the Peter Reed case did influence your decision or your, your career trajectory? I suppose a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say it was, it was a direct, but um, it gave me a bit of a, a bit of insight into like, you know, maybe where I would be if I stayed with that path in you know a couple of years or whatever um you know maybe uh clearing the fog on the glass a little bit about you know what it really might be on the next episode of the heretic peter decides to fight back I realise that there is no way I can live under that. I've either got to be completely silent, go back into my hole and never say anything ever again, or I've got to fight it. And a legal team is assembled. We laid out his options, he you know, cows over and takes it, or if he wanted to fight, these are the angles that he could be fighting on. While James Cook University go to new lengths to silence Peter. And so I tried to point that out to them, that they were destroying James Cook University in the process of something that they couldn't win effectively. As both parties head to a showdown in court. Judge Vasta was very critical throughout the proceeding, was almost bewildered uh, at times when he heard of the JCU's treatment of Professor Ridd. This episode of The Heretic has been written and presented by me, Gideon Rosner, and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg and brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support the work of the RPA or to join as a member, please visit rpa.org.au.